Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Wednesday, August 2nd. I'm Desiree Frazier. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, a new online dashboard shares an education roadmap for making up pandemic-era learning loss. Then coaches are using new technologies to help their teams acclimate and stay safe in these high temperatures. Plus, conservationists are dumping gallons of a rare fish back into the Pearl River to bolster its population. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. A new online resource is showing how Mississippi students have fared since the onset of COVID-19. Students left classrooms for spring break in 2020, but had to finish their final weeks of school from home. The following 2020-21 school year, districts did make independent decisions about remote education, but Governor Tate Reeves pushed to have classrooms reopen. This decision received mixed responses, as many experts say in-person learning is a necessity, but a pediatric vaccine hadn't yet been developed. John Crayman is Chief Information Officer for Technology at the Mississippi Department of Education. He talks with our Will Stribling about how students were affected by the disruptions of the pandemic and what their scores are looking like today. So we've been quite excited to see is that the trajectory that Mississippi had been on prior to the pandemic has resurfaced. We've seen um, something of a setback in terms of um, some loss over uh, during the pandemic year, but the growth has reemerged, which gives us positive idea that the that the what we've been doing and what we, what was working prior to the pandemic is continuing to be, you know, fully in place throughout throughout the state. Uh, I would add that um, it is not evenly distributed across the state. There are, there are some schools that continue to thrive through the pandemic, and there are some, some schools that struggled. And as we've reemerged uh, from COVID, that some have continued to grow, some have regained their growth, and some continue to struggle. And, and obviously, it will be our responsibility to help them um, get back on the right track uh, where, where they have not been able to do so themselves. You know, those schools that have either recovered to their pre-pandemic scores or even exceeded those, have any trends popped out or just like strategies that have been really, really effective for schools? That's a great question. We are currently working within MDE and looking at the different things that we are aware of and things that we supplied or supported throughout the pandemic. And we're certainly talking with districts that have been successful in 
we continue to tour around um, the state and, and getting insights from that. But that's the process that we're currently underway, and this tool will help us support that analysis and that effort. Yeah, and that's and how do you see districts using this tool? Well, we are excited to get it released, and we're excited to start, again, we're, we're going to be talking with them about what this shows. And part of it is about we want the districts to really understand where they have fallen out, not just by, you know, in the aggregate or, at the, you know, across averages at the district level or at the state level, but to be able to drill in and understand, you know, this particular school or this particular subject level or this particular uh, grade or this particular subpopulation. We want them to really understand where the success is and where uh, where the struggles um, sort of uh, persist and allow them really to zero in and understanding why. You know, sometimes when you think about what you might assume to be the case when you look at the data, it may teach you something new. And I see more results are coming out soon uh, in a couple of weeks uh, when our board meets on the 17th to share the results of 2023, which we're excited to see, you know, again, adding to this analysis, which uh, runs for, uh, up through, you know, the 2022 results. So, uh, just a little bit about logistically what went into creating a tool like this, because that's, that's just a lot, of, a lot of data to manage. Right. So the governor's office uh, granted some funds to Mississippi State University, which brought a number of partners together uh, to uh, review data that we provided uh, to begin to, to run their analysis. And so really the logistics were about, you know, trying to think through what the, the scope of the project was and about the, the data that was necessary to run this analysis and then the logistics of data sharing agreements and partnership agreements and so forth and to allow the, the funds that the governor had available to achieve the goal that, uh, that his office had set out uh, to achieve. Is there anything else that, that you'd like to add or, or just something else you could be aware of when uh, using this tool? Well, I think that you know, the information is just the beginning of the process of asking questions and, and thinking through how to move forward. And MD is committed to partnering with districts to, to, to run through that process and to help them to see the value in, and in, gain insight from the data and then align that to what the responses will be and the supports that we can provide. So this is a continuing journey, and uh, as I mentioned, the results coming out for the 2023 assessment will come out in a couple of weeks. So this is, again, a continuous, really the continuous work of the department and of districts to, to take the best information they have and make the best choices for their students and, and try to maximize the benefits and outcomes uh, that they would achieve and help the state. Yeah, and that's and you mentioned you know the 2023 numbers being added in a few weeks is the plan to just keep on building on this tool year after year so that years from now we can we'll have this just treasure trove of data to look on to see you know the progress that's been made in in our public schools in this area. That is to be seen. We're going to figure out um, how effectively effectively this helps our schools and to see if um, what we provide internally, what we provide through this partnership. Um, whatever is the best, most effective use of the resources we have to continue to help uh, districts. We hope that the districts will will take advantage of this tool, and uh, and we'll see where – and also, you know, the public in general, too. This isn't just about the schools. This is a public-facing dashboard. So we believe that the legislators will be interested in this. We believe that um, lots of people could benefit from this, but also know that we are continuing working internally to share our insights. So I mentioned in August the um, – later in August this month that the state result, results will come out for 2023 – Next month, we'll be releasing, at the end of the month, we'll be releasing the next reloaded data for the Mississippi Succeeds Report Card, which also has a lot of information aligned to this. So we have lots of data tools that we're, we're pushing out, and, and uh, we would continue to sort of encourage people to come back to the website and find the information that we're making available and where we can provide more help. We will look into finding the resources to provide that. 
John Crayman is Chief Information Officer of Technology at the Mississippi Department of Education, and that information about the pandemic and learning can be found on their website. It's called Setback and Recovery Analysis. Coming up, coaches are using new technologies to help their teams acclimate and stay safe in these high temperatures. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. What are the cool kids wearing nowadays? A bucket hat and fanny pack. I meant to say a belt bag. That's the 21st century name for it. You can get this MPB branded swag package by making a one-time $60 contribution. You'll also receive a year of PBS Passport to stream new and classic shows. A mix of current and classic. That's Mississippi Public Broadcasting. Make a contribution today at mpbonline.org. Classical, jazz, indie, blues, folk, bluegrass, whatever you call your music. Find it on MPB Music Radio on mpbonline.org or the MPB Public Media app or on an HD radio. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. Extracurricular activities at schools across the state are kicking off their training seasons, but it's also one of the hottest times of the year and especially hot this year. Coaches are working with their teams to help transition them from the air-conditioned environments they've spent most of the summer in. Our Lacey Alexander speaks with Kyle Nichols, Sports Information Director at Clinton High School. He says there's a special app called Zealous WBGT, which stands for Wet Bulb Globe Temperature. The data is really revolved around what's called the wet bulb. It is a, it is a measurement that's taken from temperature, humidity, all the different elements that are, that are there that, that could potentially provide danger for our athletes and for our coaches. Um, it standardizes it to where each school has the same reading regardless of, of it is a central app that MHSA has given us to give us the data that we need to know when we can go outside, when we can't go outside to make sure that the protection of our student athletes is the number one priority. Yeah. So tell me about what risks you face if you send these athletes outside when it is too hot outside. Well, first of all, the most important thing is the health of our of our students, the health of our young men, our young women that go outside. That's the most important thing is that we want to keep them as healthy and as safe as possible. Um, you know, beyond that, there obviously is the legal liability that if we are given if we are given these measurements to go by and we refuse to go by them, then we are opening ourselves up to to potential that we don't want to open ourselves up to potential for. So we've got to make sure that we abide by the data that's that's given to us. What entity provides that data? What manages the like what how you get that information and who gives you that information? The MHSAA has told us that this this wet bulb, this measurement device is what every school is going to go by. So in the past, you could choose Weatherbug, Wonderground, Weather Channel, whatever the case may be, and this weather data app gives us this wet bulb globe temperature that takes air temperature, it takes dew point, it takes relative humidity, it takes more than just 
the temperature and the heat index, those terms, the feels like temp that we've become so uh, used to. And it actually takes these data points and combines them to a, a central place where it gives us a flat out number that says, okay, if this number is eclipsed, we are not going outside. And it doesn't leave it up to interpretation of the coaches, which is for the protection of the coaches. It's not to try to punish them to not go outside. It's done to try to protect them and their student athletes to say, okay, this is what we're going to abide by. And if it's not, if it's not followed, then it's, it, there are consequences that go along with that. Something I was thinking about in the car is, you know, you're coaching these young athletes who potentially may have a career in this sport one day. If they're in a collegiate environment, especially in the South, they got to get used to this heat. So what is the fine line to you between taking care of young adults and coaching these young men for potentially a career in this field? Well, I think that goes back to the word that has become the hot-button word over the last few years, and that's acclimatization. Um, the idea that we are trying to not just keep our students inside, we're trying to acclimate them as well. Especially with our new school schedule, we're starting in July. We're just now hitting the first day of August. We're hitting the, the, the dog days of summer, as they say in the professional sports world. And with those dog days of summer, we are going to see the uh, we're going to see even more potential for this wet bulb number to go up. And so what we need to do now is we need to make sure that our students are safe first, and we also need to make sure that our students are acclimating to this as well. There, there is a teaching point in this to say, okay, there's a difference between the first week of practice when all we've done is weights in the morning inside, maybe a little bit of running in the morning. Now, because we have school in the morning, we're not able to get out and practice on the practice field till the afternoon in the height of the, the heat. So what this allows us to do is gives us an opportunity to keep our kids safe, but it also gives us an opportunity to say, okay, we're going to get used to this. We're going to give us an opportunity to, to prepare our bodies and our minds for something like this. Because, I mean, even if that number doesn't eclipse, that wet bulb number is still hot. There's still challenges. There's still things that our kids have to get over. We're still trying to keep them safe. We're still trying to, to get them in the best shape, in the best manner possible to compete at the highest level. Obviously, you can do what you can do to take care of your athletes, but what instruction, what protocol are you giving them on how to take care of themselves? Yeah, we have posters, we have literature, we have all sorts of different uh, outlets to try to get them to understand the importance of hydration, the importance of nutrition, the importance of sleep, the importance of, of taking care of themselves during the day to where when they do get out to us in the, the, the height of that, afternoon um, it's not as big of a shock to the system they have taken the steps that they can take to prepare themselves through hydration through proper nutrition to where when they do get outside their bodies aren't aren't as open to some of those negatives that come along with the with the heat related illnesses that, that we see yeah and you guys i'm looking behind you you have a schedule and it starts august 25th um do you think that the heat will calm down by then or are you kind of foreseeing that this will continue to be an issue when you guys start playing a schedule 
Well, again, that just goes back into the acclimatization part is the idea that if we get to August 25th and we travel over to Vicksburg for our opening game against Warren Central and we're pushing that wet bulb number but it's not quite there yet, we're going to play football. And if we play football, our boys have to be ready to play. Uh, and so, you know, we, we are going to be smart about it. The MHSAA has always been smart about it with the heat timeouts during August and September, allowing for those extra water breaks, allowing for those extra rest periods. Our coaches do an unbelievable job if they're able to be outside. They are constantly giving water breaks. They are constantly giving opportunities for hydration to be able to take care of themselves as well. This also goes into our other activities as well right we've got to we've got to make sure that our our cheerleaders who have an opportunity to practice inside most days we've got to make sure that they are taken care of when they get on the sidelines for the football games that they're acclimated to this this weather our band members our band is outside every day making sure um, that they're getting acclimated to this heat as well and then even in our school system we've got things you know our elementary schools our teachers and counselors and administrators have to watch this number at the at the lower levels to make sure their kids are able to go outside and have recess time and enjoy being a kid and enjoy playing and enjoy being around each other and those are things that we value as a school district but also at the same time safety has to be the number one priority Kyle Nichols is Sports Information Director at Clinton High School. Coming up, a threatened species of fish is given a second chance in the Pearl River. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit, relatively speaking. Southern Remedy. Kids and teens. This is Southern Remedy Women's Health. Southern Remedy is Mississippi Public Broadcasting's premier show about you and your health, featuring doctors and nurses from the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Each weekday at 11, we discuss different healthcare topics right here on MPB Think Radio. It's a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting Think Radio. MPB Think Radio. Mississippi Public Broadcasting and Think Radio. Tune in every weekday at 11 for the full every Southern Remedy Every weekday morning lineup. at 11 for the full Southern Remedy lineup. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. The pearl darter is a species of fish native to the Pearl River, but the natural population is declining. To help restore the wild fish population, pearl darters born in captivity are being released into the lower pearl to help re-up their breeding. Our Mike McEwen speaks with Matthew Wagner. He is with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service in the Jackson office. He says the pearl darter was listed as a threatened species in 2017. The main reason that the species was listed was its loss of range in the Pearl River drainage, going from being in the drainage to completely extirpated from the drainage uh, since 1973. And what factors led to that? We don't have an exact answer because uh, we, we didn't have water quality monitoring in 1973. The Clean Water Act, I think, was only enacted, I want to say it was 73 or 74. Um, so before then, we didn't really have regulation. Um, there's also a bunch of different projects that have happened on the Pearl. Uh, generally, navigation projects were one of the big things, the West Pearl Navigation Canal, um, things that destabilize the sediment within the drainage and cause some erosional waves to move through the system. We don't know if it was potentially, um, you know, agriculture or like chicken farming where they just dumped their like waste from chicken farms right into the strong river. Um, the big trip to the Pearl where these things were traditionally found in high numbers back in the 70s or what. We just don't have the monitoring. So something knocks them out of the strong river and the Pearl River. 
we don't know what it was. We think water quality is the most likely answer. And so from a wildlife biology perspective, it was just constantly declining numbers, and that's more or less how you all figured out there's something going on here? Uh, so there was a biologist out of Tulane that did annual samples at like 10 sites on throughout the whole Pearl River drainage, including the Strong River. And all of a sudden, in like the early 70s, they just stopped showing up in his samples. And it was very abrupt. I mean, for a fish to stop showing up in a river over two or three years is kind of crazy. But these fish only live for only two to three years. So whatever happened disrupted their life cycle. Forgive me if this, you know, this might be a question from a point of ignorance. I'm not a biologist after all. But if if the fish only live about two or three years and they notice that in that same span of time that a lot were declining, could it possibly have just been one really big event that led to that? Yeah, um, there was no flood that we know. There was no, like, chemical spill on record or something like that. Um, so it could have been just, you know, maybe it was really low water in 1973 and there was a sewage lagoon or something in the Strong River that knocked them out. They're, they're not known from the Pearl River above the Strong River. So basically anything that would have happened in the Strong would have wiped them out the entire Strong and then in the Pearl below. But we're not sure what caused it exactly. If I'm correct, then, the reason that you all today we're restocking them in the strong river. It's because it's a headwater for the pearl. Right. And the site where we stocked them at, at one time did have 60 fish collected there. We do. And when I say we, it's department of wildlife fisheries and parks, a state agency, um, and the fish and wildlife service have been sampling fish at that site for the past seven years. And we have been finding all the other, what we would call sensitive species, other darters, mad toms, which are small little catfish, basically fish that are bottom-oriented, that feed on aquatic invertebrates and need clean, highly oxygenated water to complete their life cycles. Um, and the, all the other fish but pearl darter have reappeared there, but they didn't get knocked out of the entire drainage. We just saw a decline in those other sensitive species in the 70s like we did with pearl darter. And so what what was the motivation or the impetus to restock them and try and get these populations back to where they were? So my job is a listing and recovery biologist, um, meaning that we list things when they need protection. And secondarily, we try and recover them to get them delisted from the Endangered Species Act whenever we can. So the, the recovery plan for the pearl darter was just published earlier this year. And the main recovery action to delist pearl darter from the Endangered Species Act is reestablish it in the Pearl River drainage. And by reestablish, we mean not a uh, we're putting them in every single year, but to a po- stock them to a point where they're su- they're reproducing and self-sustaining as a population. I'm I'm wondering about the decision to breed some of them. Private John Allen National Fish Hatchery. Yeah, that's right. Yep. Is is that kind of I don't want to say an industry standard because I know y'all aren't really an industry, but is that something <laughs> an established practice maybe for a couple decades, or is that kind of a new approach? I mean, we've been breeding game species for longer than a few decades but the non-game and the like threatened and endangered fish breeding especially the small-bodied stuff that's fairly new in hatcheries there's one private hatchery i know of in knoxville tennessee that does do threatened and endangered small-bodied fishes um basically picture fishes you can put in aquariums type of size um the bigger hatcheries that are the federal ones have traditionally done stuff like striped bass or sturgeon but in the past like decade, there's been a much larger push for our, our federal hatcheries to propagate our federally listed species and stock them. Pearl darter is the first listed species that Private John Allen's ever stocked anywhere. Um, everything else has been a game species or something that's not listed but still has conservation needs. 
Um, they do alligator gar. That's a species of conservation concern, but it's also a game species. People hunt or fish for them. The, the Korean Tublo has done one other darter for us. It's called the Yakna Batafa darter. That's a mouthful to say, but we've actually done a reintroduction of them in North Mississippi and a tributary to the Yakna River. Um, and that's been successful. We actually have them reproducing in there. We stopped stocking because the population was doing so good after four years. Are you all planning on another reintroduction or another stocking event in the future? Is that something that you'll kind of play by ear as you get testing results back? So the goal with this, so we put 39 fish in today. That's that's a, a small drop in the bucket in the grand scheme of things. It's it's. I mean, it's a start. But if I would have had 300 or 3,000 fish, 3,000 I probably would have stocked a few different places, but 300 fish, I would have felt a bit more confident. We're going to be propagating these at the federal hatchery um, and at that private hatchery I talked about earlier this next year with goals of getting more numbers. And this is probably going to be something that we're going to be stocking for five to ten years before they get established in the river. Um, So it's not a short-term one-and-done type of thing. Um, it's a long-term project and we're going to be monitoring doing surveys every year after this year. We're not going to survey this year because we don't want to accidentally like chalk the fish up that we stocked before they get a chance to spawn. Um, so, uh, I guess, yeah, this is a long-term plan. That was Matthew Wagner with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.